This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Bumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about happiness. In a constantly chaotic world, like the one that we all live in, happiness can feel fleeting. Which is why this episode focuses on what science says we can do to keep the happiness going. Today's guest will tell you very quickly that our minds lie to us about happiness. That what our intuition tells us will or will not make us happy is often fueled by misconception. That's where the work of social scientists comes in. By studying what happiness really is and how to measure it, they've moved beyond these common misconceptions to identify practices that can lead to happier lives. Happiness takes work. This can take the form of daily behavioral changes, larger structural changes in our lives, and mindfully balancing happiness with our negative emotions. And yeah, sometimes it requires professional help. Our guest today spends a lot of time talking about and studying happiness. Professor Lori Santos is a cognitive scientist and psychology professor at Yale University. A few years ago, she launched the popular class, Psychology and the Good Life, and the podcast, The Happiness Lab. Guiding the conversation is Catherine L. Bollock-Ziegler, an assistant psychology professor at Seattle University. I hope you find this conversation helpful. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Dr. Santos, welcome. Thanks so much for having me on Crosscut. Yeah, thanks for joining. So I wanted to start out with actually a definition. So I'd like to hear what is happiness. Um, And if I want to know how happy I am or my partner is or my child or a student is, you know, how can I figure this out? Yeah, well, this definition of happiness is like a super big question, right? We could have a whole class and a very, very long conversation about it. Um, I think social scientists try to define happiness in a way that's pretty easy, you know, something that really captures the notion of what it means to be happy, but also is like pretty straightforward in terms of measurement. So most social scientists tend to think of happiness as having two parts. So it's kind of being happy in your life and being happy with your life. So being happy in your life is just the fact that you have lots of positive emotions, you have joy and humor and awe. It's not that you have no negative emotions, but at least the ratio is pretty good. We'll end up talking about negative emotions. We get the sense you don't want any negative emotions. No, you need those there for a meaningful life, but you want that ratio to be pretty good. That's being happy in your life. Um, But you also want to be happy with your life. And that's just the extent to which you're really satisfied with your life. Does your life have purpose and meaning? It's the answer to the question, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? You know, so if you feel like your life is going good and you think your life is going well, then a social scientist might say you're happy. Um, but then that raises a different question, which is how do we know, right? How do I know if my partner is happy or my child is happy? And I wish as a scientist that we had like a little happiness thermometer. We could like plop it in somebody's mouth, like you're 98.6, you know, happy. Um, sadly, we don't. Um, but what we do have is like a fantastic tool to get at people's happiness, which is their self-report. Like we really like ask people, how happy are you using these really well-validated scales? Um, and what we find is that people can tell us, they can tell us in a way that winds up correlating with all these other things that we know matter for happiness, you know, people's 
you know, journal entries and the adjectives they use in their journal entries, what people who are close to people would self-report about their happiness and so on. Um, but it also kind of is the thing I'm trying to maximize, right? In some sense, if you tell me, hey, I'm feeling happy in my life, I'm really satisfied with my life, like those are the kinds of things we need interventions to maximize more. That's fascinating. I love how you mentioned it was showing up in journal entries too. Um, so it seems to be showing up in places maybe less intentionally even. Um, does it show up in other places, like in the way that we, um, like would happiness show up, I don't know, in the way we organize our house or in the way that we socialize with others? Yeah, organizing house, I don't think like the psychometrics folks have really looked at, but you see these really cool correlations in terms of people's physiological profiles. If you look at things like, you know, for example, stress hormones like cortisol and so on, um, these things definitely come out in people's journal entries. One of the most uh, famous studies of happiness and longevity actually looked at uh, people's early entry entries into their journals in their 20s. And you can literally just pull out the happy adjectives, you know, just do some sort of machine learning to pull out what are the emotional words. And that really has strong predictions with how happy people will be later on in life and so on. So we have all these like little leaks of the kinds of things that, that like show our, our true emotions and show how happy we really are, which makes sense, right? Because happiness is this fluid thing that's going to be part of so much about how we present in the world. Fascinating, thank you. Um, well, I would like to know, you know, assuming we know how happy we are, we can relatively tell um, how our, at least our close others are on happiness. What is one of those biggest misconceptions that we have, maybe about specifically what we think will make us happy? Um, so kind of two parts. So what are the biggest misconceptions that you see? Um, and then what actually does make people happy? Yeah, well, the, the bad news is there are lots of misconceptions. Um, when I teach my, my undergrads in my class, I talk about the fact that our minds lie to us about happiness. And what I mean by this is that we have these intuitions about the kinds of things that make us happy. It's not like we don't have theories. Like if I said a genie were to show up and it'll grant you three wishes that will make you happy, you'd have those wishes at the ready. There are things you think if these things happened in my life, I would feel happier. But by and large, when you look at people to whom those things have really happened, you know, so they won the lottery or they got married or you know, had these wonderful accolades and kinds of things they wanted to happen in their career happen, you know, what you find is that people aren't as happy as folks often predict. They're not as happy as people predict and they're not as happy for as long as people predict. We seem to have these um, mispredictions or as uh, researchers Dan Gilbert and Tim Wilson call it, this sort of miswanting, this sense of like, we want this stuff thinking it's going to make us happy, but it doesn't make us as happy as we think. You know, and, and top of the list are things like money, material possessions. Most of us believe if we were incredibly rich, we'd be happy. You go out and you find the rich folks, they're not as happy as we predict. Um, another one is, you know, I'll be happy when, you know, whatever your own personal happiness mm -hmm. ever after is, I'll be happy when I get married, or I'll be happy when I get that promotion. Um, that's what researcher Chal Ben Shahir calls the arrival fallacy. Like when I arrive at this spot, I'll be happy. And yeah, those things will probably be good, but they won't be as good as you think. And they won't have a lasting impact on your happiness. Uh, Dan Gilbert, who I mentioned, is fond of saying, happily ever after only works if you really have a few more minutes to live, right? <laughs> like it's like happiness <laughs> is a destination that you're just going to get to. It's it's going to be changing over time. So, so these are the misconceptions we have. But then that raises this question of, okay, what really does make us happy? And this is where I love that we have some research on this, right? We can go out and look at happy people and ask, how do they behave? You know, what do they spend their money on? What do they spend their time on? You know, what are their mindsets? What are they doing differently than the not so happy folks? Then we get some hints 
And we can run experiments to really test, okay, if we make not so happy people do the stuff that happy people are doing, or maybe develop the mindsets that happy people have, will they feel happier themselves? And, and this is what this field of positive psychology has done now for at least three decades, right? We have a lot of work showing the kinds of things that really do work for happiness. And so what are the top, you know, what are the top things? Um, first thing, which makes sense, you know, for a social species is that happy people tend to be incredibly social. Um, happy people tend to be around other humans more often, and they tend to prioritize time with their friends and family members. Um, one study by Ed Diener and Marty Seligman, these two famous positive psychologists, once claimed that uh, a necessary condition for high happiness was being really social. Um, so social connection, a big one. Um, doing for others, very related to social connection, but things like random acts of kindness, being part of service and so on. That also seems to make for a happy life, which is another kind of interesting misconception, right? I think we think of happiness as like treat yourself, you know, just, you know, self-care, mm -hmm. these kinds of things. But actually, if you look at happy people, they tend to be spending their money and their time on others. You know, so this interesting sort of social component of happiness. Um, another big component of happiness seems to be something about our mindset. Um, having a mindset of presence, right? Where you're mindful and noticing what's going on. This seems to mm -hmm. have a big impact on our happiness in ways we don't often expect. Uh, another big mindset change is to shift towards an attitude of, of gratitude. Um, this is one I get wrong all the time, especially on the heels of a global pandemic. It feels like, you know, you know, kvetching, complaining. That's my prediction is that will feel nice over, you know, at the dinner table or nice over a glass of wine with a friend. But the data suggests that actually focusing on your blessings instead of your hassles is really a path to happiness. So you're kind of shifting your mindset to be more present and to kind of notice um, some of the good things out there. And then another big feature for happiness is just our healthier behaviors, you know, so super simple things like sleep and exercise, these things matter way more than we think for our mental health. And so, you know, there are these simple hacks we can engage in to improve our overall happiness, our overall subjective well-being, but they're often not the things we think. And that's a problem because it's not like we're not working on our happiness. Like we're putting effort in, we might just be doing it the wrong way. That's fascinating. So given that kind of gap in self-knowledge, do you or other positive psychologists have a sense of like how to best share this knowledge? I know that um, I believe you have like a Coursera course and, you know, there's all of those learning opportunities, but are there other ways that kind of that knowledge gap can be um, uh, abbreviated at least or shortened yeah. there? I mean, the knowledge gap is kind of a pain, right? I mean, I say this as somebody who teaches this class, right? Like I could lift off, you know, the, the D of the empirical study that I'm talking about for this kind of miswanting. But when I'm in the trenches and I'm having a bad day, my intuition is not to, you know, list things I'm grateful for or like, you know, buy something <laughs> for someone else. So like treat myself mm -hmm. and complain about what's going on, right? Even knowing all the data, my intuitions are still off. I think this is an important thing to remember. Merely knowing what we're supposed to be doing isn't enough. We actually have to make some behavior changes to see any effect in our real life, you know, especially when it comes to our well-being. And this is tough because behavior change is hard. You know, as a psychologist, you know this yourself, yeah. right? Like one of the <laughs> things that we've learned is like re really changing people's minds is is you know hard but doable, but really changing people's behavior. You know, that's kind of the holy grail and it's hard. Um, but what I found, you know, teaching this, these kinds of concepts to, to students both here at Yale and, and online with the podcast is like when people hear the scientific data and they, they see the results and they see the evidence behind some of this stuff, it can start you down on a path to changing your behavior. You can realize like, huh, you know, I see, you know, how much of a big well-being boost, for example, you get from you know, listing a few things you're grateful for every day. 
you know, even when that doesn't feel like your intuition, you could be like, all right, I'm just going to commit to that. I'm going to try it out. And I think if you mindfully notice the effects of some of these practices, you can see that they can have, you know, a bit, they can lead to a really big boost in your well-being, often in ways you couldn't anticipate that you couldn't expect. I imagine these have pretty, they affect you pretty quickly. So it can, you can pretty quickly be convinced that, oh, maybe practicing a gratitude journal or socializing with others would be, um, you know, a positive thing to incorporate. Um, unlike maybe exercise, which might take a little bit longer, or physical exercise that might take a little longer to start enjoying the process of if you're, yeah. You're not exactly. I see, you know, it. so many anecdotes of students who are like, I didn't believe it, but I tried it. And now, you know, I'm meditating to become a little bit more mindful, for example. And like, you know, I'm just having an easier time with my final exams or like I'm sleeping a little bit more and all of a sudden my depression oh, is getting yeah. better. And so you know, we forget that, you know, our minds are connected to our bodies. We forget that we can make these hacks to our behaviors and they can lead to big changes in our in our lives and in our overall well-being. Thank you. Um, I kind of, so we've been talking a lot about how great happiness is. And that's, I think our, um, you know, that's our intuition. And I, I think our intuition is probably true, but is there a dark side to happiness? So should we be more, you know, reserved in trying to become happy or, or, you know, being too concerned um, about being happy? So is there a dark side to happiness? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things we could mean, like by a dark side to happiness, right? Like one is, I think, I think there's a real fear that if we're just completely happy, that we'll be complacent, right? You know, if we're, we're incre feeling lots of joy, we'll just be this Pollyanna when we look out at all the like structural problems of the world and, you know, the war in Ukraine and like the climate change, we'll just be like, la, 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 everything's great because I'm happy. Um, totally get that intuition. But again, this is an intuition we could check. We could ask, you know, are happier people more likely to ignore some of these big structural problems? And, and this is what uh, Konstantin Kushlev and his colleagues have looked at. Um, he actually looks at, who are the people who, for example, are going to say a Black Lives Matter protest? Or who are the people who are engaging in climate change behaviors like putting on solar panels or again, like volunteering for some organization that's working on sustainability? And what he finds is that if you look at people's overall well-being, it's the people who self-report being happier who are engaging in actions that are changing some of these things around, right? Which when you think about it, makes sense. Like you need some like emotional bandwidth to actually deal with the structural problems of the world, mm -hmm. right? And if you're feeling depressed, if you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling overwhelmed, you're just not gonna have the bandwidth to do that. Um, so that's kind of one you know thing I think is, is a dark side we assume is going on with happiness. It'll make us mm -hmm. be complacent, but actually the results suggest just the opposite. In fact, we might wanna promote people's happiness if we want to attack and deal with some of these big structural changes that matter a lot that we need to kind of work on. But this sort of a different dark side of happiness you could mean, which is you know, a sort of uh, what is often summed up is like toxic positivity, this idea that like, it's not okay if you're not happy, right? Like if you're not feeling happy, something's wrong and you got to do one of these interventions, like get on your meditating or gratitude journaling. You should never feel sad or anxious or whatever. And this I think is another mistaken notion we have, right? Like there's a sense that the true happiness, the sense of feeling happy in your life and with your life requires avoiding completely any negative emotions. But this is just both not possible and a kind of silly notion. Like evolutionarily speaking, our negative emotions are there for a good reason. There are these like kind of like beacons that are telling us something. Like when you're sad, it's like, hey, something is amiss. Or if you're angry, it's like, hey, there's a social situation that you need to get in front of. Or if you're feeling anxious, it's like there's something bad on the horizon. There is a threat that we need to you know attend to and deal with and figure out. 
And I think we forget that negative emotions are sometimes normative, you know, which is especially important to realize, you know, on the heels of the pandemic, we found ourselves in, in right now, like, you know, it's normative to feel frustrated with COVID. It's normative to feel anxious and uncertain. It's normative to be sad about so many deaths that we faced, right? Um, these are normative emotions in certain contexts. And so we got to get over this idea of toxic positivity, happiness, even being happy in your life requires having positive emotions. It's true. But to have a real meaningful life, you got to have some negative emotions. You wouldn't want to shut off all that stuff. It's such an important signaling system, just in the same way you wouldn't want to shut off your pain receptors, right? You know, if you put your hand on a hot stove, that feeling doesn't feel good, but like, that's an important signal. Like, get your hand off the stove. We think of that when it comes to physical pain, but we forget that the same is true of emotional pain. We kind of need those signals there. So yes, the, there's a dark side to when happiness is all about, you know, smiling emojis and we're perfectly happy all the time and a little, you know, creep of sadness, like, oh, something terrible has gone wrong. But, you know, a, a true sense of real happiness, you know, Aristotle and others might call eudaimonia, right? The sense of like a meaningful good life. You kind of need those negative emotions there too. I appreciate that. And I, I also like how you mentioned kind of understanding the normativeness of yes, it's okay, or it's typical for you to be feeling this way, um, given the state of the world at whatever point in time, especially with the pandemic. Um, so thank you for calling that out. I don't know if you had any more that you wanted to add. It, it seems like it brings in a little bit of that social piece too that you were talking about. So if there's kind of a shared understanding of um, what might be going on um, and what sort of emotions are normal. Um, I think this is, you know, this is something that comes up a lot with my students, right, is that, you know, especially taking this class, I think they can, we can start feeling guilty for our normative emotions, we can start feeling guilty when we're, for example, feeling overwhelmed or feeling burnt out and busy. And it's like, no, no, it's normative to feel that way sometimes. Um, I think that, you know, another mindset that we really need to promote more of to feel happier is a mindset of self-compassion where we're kind of, you know, giving ourselves the same kindness we might give a friend, especially in the context of some of these negative emotions. You know, I know, especially with the type A Yale students I deal with, you know, their instinct is like, you know, something's going bad, something must be wrong. But like, again, it's human to feel this stuff sometimes. And, and an attitude of self-compassion really can be broken down into sort of these three parts that are useful to think about. This is the lovely work of uh, Kristen Neff at UT Austin. So, you know, she talks about this idea that uh, self-compassion really involves first a sense of mindfulness, like you're present, you're noticing like, oh, this is overwhelm or this is frustration or this is anxiety, right? You're not running away from it. You're kind of allowing it and mindfully being aware of it. Um, but you're also exercising a sense of common humanity. That's the sort of second thing. You're not like, I'm a robot and I will be perfect and you know, nothing bad's ever going to happen. You're like, no, I'm human. It's normative to like not be perfect all the time or not feel great all the time, right? This is just kind of the way it goes. But then there's a third part, which is a sense of self-kindness. You know, I think some of the worst things about negative emotions is that we beat ourselves up for them, you know, especially in the context of negative emotions, I think, that come up in a workplace or in family life and so on. And that self-kindness means you, you know, talk to yourself like you talk to a friend who is experiencing that emotion. Hopefully with your friends, you wouldn't tell them, like, you suck, get over it, or, you know, like, like stop doing that. <laughs> hopefully, you know, hopefully, right? Like, hopefully with a friend, you'd be like, okay, like, you know, you're just human. You're going to get through this. And you talk to yourself with kindness. Um, Neff's work shows that people who 
react to their own negative emotions and even their own work failures and academic failures with self-compassion, they're more resilient in the face of these failures and these negative situations. They're more likely to kind of dive back in, study harder in the case of an academic situation or find different strategies for overcoming, you know, really awful situations like things like trauma. Um, she even finds that, uh, you know, war veterans, for example, who engage in more self-compassion are less likely to get PTSD. And so with the oh. mindset that we take towards ourselves is really a way that we can navigate some truly awful situations, some truly bad emotions, um, and allow them to be there, not fight them or run away from them, but allow them to be there in a way that we can learn from them and kind of gain the meaningful experience that they contain. I feel like we're building a little toolkit right now with all of the <laughs> you know, different mindsets that we can take on, we can socialize with others, exactly. um, which I think kind of, well, let, let me lead the end then to our next question. So I think it's fair to say that the isolation and physical distancing um, and various safety measures stemming from COVID-19 have been hard on everyone. Um, and so as we relax more and return to more in-person experiences, do you see society responding or changing in ways that are good for our happiness? So maybe things that are different from how they were pre-pandemic days? Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, one thing we know in the field of behavior change is that, uh, you know, there, there, as we said, behavior change is really hard, but there are these moments, these like little blips of time when behavior change can be a little bit easier. And they tend to be at moments of what uh, researcher Katie Milkman calls fresh starts, right? You know, a new birthday or the new year starts or you move to a new city, mm -hmm. right? When, when things are disruptive and our kind of psychological sense of time seems like it has a break in it, um, we're a little bit more able to engage in new behavioral patterns, new mindsets and so on. And what a temporal break, you know, was COVID. I feel like, you know, right. March 2017, I don't know what I was doing that, but March 2020, like, we all know what happened. And it was a big psychological break for all of us. And I think this is a thing that we can use, right? Like this kind of moment can be a real fresh start moment, especially as now that we have vaccines and a lot of us are kind of going back to normal a little, little bit more. Like we can really use this moment to say, intentionally, you know, what kinds of changes do I want to make both in my work life? What kinds of changes do I want to make in my family life? I think the pandemic taught us to savor things we missed out on. I know I'll, I will, I still am going to restaurants in like a different way now where I'm like, I can be in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. you know, like, like it's something I <laughs> completely for granted before that now I remember differently. I think the pandemic taught us that certain things that we assumed were non-negotiable might be negotiable, you know, our commute you know, having to work in certain ways or certain right. hours and things before. And so the hope is that we will learn from that and have learned the consequences of some of those things. And that we'll be able to make the behavioral changes in this like lovely fresh start moment and, and use this really well. Um, but of course that changes up to us, right? But I think thinking about ways right. you can be more intentional with your own individual choices, with your own family choices, like now is the moment. Hopefully we're not in for like another hundred year pandemic fresh start, like anytime soon. <laughs> this one now um, to kind of do the best we can with it. Well, I think that adds another optimistic and cool element, I suppose, to returning back to in-person is that fresh start. So thank you. Um, I wanted to give a quick reminder to folks at home that um, to be sure to add questions to the, uh, the chat section, we'll be asking some of them soon. So feel free to add some um, to the chat for us to get to soon. 
All right. So I'd like to hear a little bit about what advice, um, you know, your, uh, so what advice do you have for folks who might be struggling with their mental health right now? You know, maybe it is harder for them to come back to um, in person or whatever, you know, what have you. Um, so what are, what are some things that um, you might suggest to them or advice you would give to them? Or, you know, and if the person, if we're not feeling like we're struggling with our mental health, you know, I'm sure we all know at least someone who is. So I'd love to hear some advice on that. Yeah, well, well, first I'd start with, you know, again, sort of, you know, taking a moment to remember the context, right? Again, we're coming out of a, like, hopefully once a century, like, awful pandemic that has disrupted our work lives, our family lives, the things that we just assumed were sacred and held dear, those things went away. And there's like some real trauma associated with something that that's that's that terrible, right? It's, it's normative to feel uncertain. It's normative to feel frustrated. It's normative to feel scared. It's normative to feel out of practice with the normal social interactions that we took for granted when you don't do them for three years. Like none of us are robots and we're all really feeling this like that. It makes sense that a lot of us are feeling not okay. And that is on top of like, you know, the situation we were in before, which wasn't all like unicorns and rainbows, right? <laughs> like structures of racism, climate change, mm -hmm. overwork, you know, uh, all this stuff was going on in the background before COVID-19 even hit. And so I think, you know, one of the first things is to recognize like, it's okay to not feel okay right now. And to admit that, to mindfully admit that, right? Um, and then if you are struggling, really have some self-compassion, right? I think, again, one of the worst things about feeling like you're struggling with your mental health is the fact that we tend to beat ourselves up for it um, when it's both just a medical issue like any other kind of sickness we could catch but it's also just something that's normative it's a normal reaction to like really tough times so that's i think step number one is to like start with the self-compassion start with the self-kindness start with the kind of common humanity that like a lot of us are going through this the second thing is to realize that, the, that everything the science shows suggests that there's real hope here. Like there are simple interventions that you can take that will make a difference. It won't necessarily be a case where, you know, if you're feeling really depressed day one, you know, you write in a gratitude journal and now, you know, everything's roses and perfect, but there are significant effects that you can see um, by engaging in some of these practices, by trying to work to get a little bit more social connection, trying to work to become a little bit more mindful and become a little bit more present, trying to shift a tad towards these blessings. Um, you know, again, even something as simple as exercise and sleep. There's you know, one study shows that a half hour of cardio exercise every day can be in some cases as effective as like taking an antidepressant medication, right? These simple hacks we can do to our body are really powerful. And so that's kind of point number two is to remember like, there is really hope here. Like there are interventions that can help. Even if you feel like you're in a dark place right now, there are things you can do to feel better. Um, the final thing though, is that you got to put some work in and that's normative too. Like it's a pain in the butt to like change our behavior. <laughs> um, but the act of changing your behavior can really have some big beneficial effects. And so, um, so those would be kind of, you know, my three things like st start with some self-kindness, some st self-compassion, realize that the data suggests like a big reason for hope but recognize that it's going to require some some hard work, you know, like all good things in life. Thank you. Um, and I might add, I suppose, too, just that, you know, it's I imagine at some point um, these interventions are not enough. And so actually seeking mental health guidance from Tony. counselors or therapists might be um, a necessity as well for some folks. So not relying, you know, completely on these interventions. Um, exactly. And I'm glad you brought that up, too. I think, you know, one of the ways I talk about it with my students is that you know, the different levels of acute illness require different kinds of care, right? You know, so take physical illness. You know, if you go into your doctor's office and you say, hey, doctor, I, 
have high blood pressure, what should I do? Your doctor might be like, well, you know, every morning hop on the treadmill, you know, and, you know, get a, get some exercise in. But if you walk into your doctor's office and say, like, I am having chest pains, I'm in acute cardiac arrest right now, your doctor is not going to be like, Monday morning, hop on the chest. Your doctor will be like, oh my gosh, like, well, you know, like, we'll have an intervention yeah. that we do for this acute situation. And I think it's necessary to recognize that our mental health works like that. A lot of these interventions I'm talking about are spots where if you're feeling, you know, a little depressed, a little bit more anxious, you know, that you're not flourishing as much as you used to be, these are interventions that really help. You know, if you're having a panic attack right now, if you're feeling acutely suicidal, like you actually need to get professional help in the same way that you would go to the doctor's office if you were experiencing cardiac arrest. And so it's really important that these things are there to help and they might be there to help, you know, even our, our cardiac arrest guy, you know, once he heals, probably he does need to get on the treadmill in the morning, you know, a few weeks later, months later. But um, so these interventions, I think, can help in all those cases. But if you're really in a, an acute mental health crisis, getting professional help is, is important and urgent in, in a lot of these cases. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, well, I know that you're, um, you've kind of been in a unique position at Yale um, in that you've been the, uh, the head of Yale Sullivan College. Um, mm-hmm. And so this has meant you've kind of lived in the community with these students or like you, you certainly interact with them outside of the classroom a lot more. And so I'm wondering, um, as, a, as another professor, I find that fascinating um, and, you know, curious kind of what you've experienced or like what have you learned about maybe young adult college students um, or at least those at Yale? You know, I don't want to generalize too far, I suppose. But, you know, what do you wish that outsiders knew um, based on your experiences and what you've seen um, young adults going through um, in your position? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it, it honestly is one of the reasons that I kind of retrained in some of this work on positive psychology. When I first took on this role as head of college, right, literally I'm like eating with students in the dining hall. I kind of live with them on campus. You know, I was expecting college life to be like what college life was like back when I went to college, which, you know, there were some stresses and things like that. But generally people were, you know, mostly pretty happy. And right now that's just the data suggests it's simply not the case i mean it's that simply not the case at yale but simply not the case nationally right so you know one national uh survey found that over 40 percent of college students right now nationally report being too depressed to function most days over two-thirds report feeling overwhelmingly anxious and more than one in ten has seriously considered suicide in the last year you know, and so I think if I'm, you know, so I want people to know those statistics because that's what that's the crisis we're really dealing with nationally. And I think sometimes when I talk to people, I hear like, oh, you know, there's snowflakes, you know, a few students kind of, but like, that's not what's going on. Like, we're really seeing students that are in pretty serious distress right now. And so, you know, if you have a high school student, if you have a student who's in college, if you have a young child, like, this is what they're going to face, um, you know, in their late teens and early 20s. And so, finding ways to get these strategies out even earlier um, and working with people to kind of give folks some tools that they can use to feel better is, is more urgent than ever. You know, young people really need it. Thank you. Yeah, those statistics are, are very powerful um, and in- incredibly sad. Um, but of course, thank you for sharing that with the audience and myself as well. Um, so one more question about your experience at Yale. Um, I know that you recently decided to take a sabbatical um, from your work. And I was wondering, could you describe some of that decision-making process that led you to that decision? I know that, um, you know, there a lot of folks, sabbatical is not leaving your job permanently, but a lot of folks have been finding ways or just leaving entirely their positions um, to uh, look for others um, during the pandemic. It's been an interesting career shifting time. 
Um, but you know, not everyone wants to or could, um, you know, have that flexibility. So I'm wondering, what would you suggest for people who are struggling um, with or are close to burnout? Um, you know, and how that might relate to your own decision making process. But what would you suggest to folks who are, you know, not in as flexible a position as you? Yeah, as, as you know, in academics, we're, we're very flexible. There exists this thing called sabbatical where you can take take some time off. Um, and not everyone, of course, is as privileged as this. But, you know, in terms of what I was noticing myself, you know, I was, uh, you know, I too am human, common humanity, like dealing with the pandemic. It's been tough for everyone. I think it was especially tough when I was running a residential college, right, um, where I watched my students, you know, get sent home and then come back to a semester that they were online and that they couldn't navigate the normal things. And, you know, that was really, really tough. And I was starting to see in myself the seeds of, of burnout. And I think, you know, burnout is another thing we have a lot of misconceptions about. So it's worth noting that burnout is like a special kind of clinical syndrome. Um, it, it has kind of three distinct parts. One is what we kind of understand, which is what's known as emotional exhaustion. You're just like, it's more than just you're physically tired all the time. You just like can't even <laughs> like you get a great night rest and you're still <laughs> deeply exhausted. Um, but there are two other features that I think we don't often associate with burnout. One is uh, what, what what scientists call depersonalization, which is really a fancy way of saying you're just really cynical. Like you're questioning the intentions of the clients you serve and the colleagues you work with. You just like can't deal with people and you're just frustrated with people in a different way. You start to worry that like, maybe this job is making me like a worse person when it comes to dealing with other people. That's depersonalization. Yeah. Um, and then a third feature is what's known as a, a sense of personal inefficacy. Like you just feel like, you know, the forces are conspiring against you from doing a good job. And honestly, even if you were able to do your job, it wouldn't be that meaningful anyway. You have this kind of crisis of a sense of meaning. And so those three things, when they, they're kind of different constructs, but when they happen together, you know, you're really on a path to burnout and, and the, the you know, solution for burnout looks different than the solution for some of the well-being things I was talking about before. Yeah, you can definitely improve your subjective well-being through being more present or exercising a bit more. With burnout, you know, you need to think about organizational changes to your work balance or the way that you're actually working. Often it requires sort of structural changes or st changes in the way that you relate to your work. So not just you and the things that you do, but it's your sense of identity at work, how you're interacting with work, the amount of time you're putting into your work and so on. And so, you know, the solution, even if you can't take a sabbatical, as we said, not everybody has the luxury of this, is to really rethink, you know, your own relationship with work or to think if you can work with your company or the folks you work with to think about structural changes there. Um, often those structural changes are much harder than, you know, the kind of interventions we were just talking about before, but they seem really necessary and they're quite important uh, for dealing with something like burnout. And then in the meantime, burnout comes with a lot of negative emotions. And we've just talked about lots of strategies you can use to navigate those. That doesn't solve the burnout part, um, but it really can kind of help you navigate it while it's happening. So I think these things are so important to pay attention to. And I think these are things that businesses need to pay attention to because you know, as people burn out, they do a worse job with their clients. They're less personally ineffective. They're pretty miserable and they're more likely to leave. And so I think as businesses think about ways to solve the great resignation to help workers be more productive and do a better job as they're thinking about their bottom line, they really need to think about burnout too. And so, yeah, not as easy a solution as I think folks want, but a necessary right. one to be thinking about in important ways. Uh, so, you know, businesses can be productive and we can all be happy and not cynical and enjoy our work. We'll be back with more after this message. 
Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Um, I'd like to move to some of the um, questions that we're getting from um, our audience. And so one of those is, you know, you've mentioned a lot about social relationships as kind of being even really key, like that's, you know, baseline, you at least have to have that. Um, so do introverts, um, do they need to force themselves to be more extroverted to be happy? Or, um, you know, what is that, you know, when we think of extroversion, uh, does that just leave uh, folks who are lower in extroversion at a uh, permanent disadvantage, you know, what would you, um, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, well, this is something that researchers who kind of track in in well-being and social connection have looked at in detail. In fact, there's some lovely work by uh, Nick Epley and his colleagues at the University of Chicago that have looked at this in detail. And what he often finds is that introverts might have maybe even more of a misprediction about social connection than extroverts do. Um, you know, so he does these studies where he kind of forces people to engage in social connection and looks at whether or not it boosts their well-being. So he uh, tells his subjects, for example, um, you know, while you're on your commuter train going to work, I want you to make a new social connection with a complete stranger. So I want you to talk to somebody for the rest of the train ride. Or, you know, in a control condition, I want you to just be silent and by yourself and don't talk to anyone, right? Um, he first has people predict how is this going to feel, and people predict Everybody overall on average predicts it's going to be kind of awkward, a little bit weird. Introverts predict this is going to be like the worst situation ever, like in the street, you know, anything that everyone has to do, right? Um, but then he has people do it and he can look at whether or not those predictions match how they really feel. And what he finds is that both introverts and extroverts get the same boost from their social connection. The difference is that introverts really mispredict even more than extroverts. And so what does this mean? I think this means that you know, a lot of introverts are not engaging in social connection in part because they're like, they have this very strong intuition that like, this is gonna not feel great, this is gonna be bad. But if you can find ways to engage in really meaningful social connection, again, not going to some huge party, like he's, Nick's not asking introverts to like go off to Coachella or something, like Nick's just saying like, just talk one-on-one with a person about something really interesting. And what you find is that people enjoy that more than they expect and introverts enjoy that more than they expect. And Nick goes on to talk about how, you know, this is, you know, maybe a problem for introverts. Like if you strongly have a prediction that social connection is going to feel awful, you never do it, but then you might never see the rewards that you could get from something like you kind of live in this misconception and don't really update. Um, and so his advice is like, try out baby steps to social connection. It could really help. Um, another thing to realize, though, is that I think introverts get a lot of uh, a boost in their well-being from alone time. So it's not so much that the social time is bad, it's that they also need to refresh by themselves, too. And so you really do kind of want a balance of both of those as you think through things. But, um, but yeah, but social connection is important, even for introverts. So we have one viewer who um, is mentioning that, um, you know, sometimes those, sometimes other folks don't want to socialize. So yes, you know, it seems that it, socializing is important. Uh, we may even be a friendly person, um, but that if the other person doesn't want to be friendly or they're unwilling to socialize, you know, 
what should someone do? Um, and I have a sense of what you might suggest based on the study that you're just talking about, but if you might speak to that viewer yeah. in their situation. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is the intuition that I have, right? Like, it's like, I've heard this work, I'm on the plane, I'm like, should I talk to yeah. someone? They don't seem like they want to talk to me. You know, they seem like they're working, like, I'm not sure. And this is what a lot of people predict. One of the reasons people don't engage in social connection is they predict it won't be fun for themselves, right? That's a sort of introvert prediction. But there's a second misprediction. It was like, we also think the other person's not going to like it. The other person's going to find it awkward. They're going to think I'm weird. They're not going to want to <laughs> talk to me. And Nick Epley actually runs this condition too. And what he finds is that we constantly mispredict what other people think. Like, you know, if you engage with somebody in like an interesting social way or ask them an interesting question about themselves, oftentimes people want to talk to you. Oftentimes people are, you know, like the other person on the train is like bored. They don't want to do their work or look at their spreadsheet. And like, if you talk to them in a meaningful way, they might be excited about it too. And so this, it turns out, is another misprediction we have is that we predict other people are going to think we're weird and not talk to them, not want us to talk to them. But in fact, they kind of get something out of it too. And so I would, you know, the advice would be like, suspend disbelief just a little bit um, and try things out. Um, another thing is, you know, so this is for strangers and sort of reaching out, but I think this is, you know, good advice for our close friends too. You know, oftentimes when people haven't got back in touch with us, we just assume, oh, they don't want to talk to us, right? But they might be busy. They might be waiting for us to make the first move or reach out to them. Um, oftentimes, you know, really what the research suggests is most of your efforts to gain more social connection will give you back more than you expect and will give the other people around you back more than, than you expect or than they expect to. That's great. I, um, I think I've heard that referred to as mind reading where you, I, I think that's the right for, you know, for like assuming you assume someone isn't liking the situation or doesn't want to interact with you or, um, but you know, maybe not. And maybe find, you know, still, trying to initiate that conversation um, and this, could. And this is true not just for social connection. It's true for so many other things, right? You know, take take gratitude, which I mentioned. Often the things we're grateful for aren't things there are other people, right? But we tend not to express our gratitude either because we feel like it might be weird, you know, if you just like think somebody really genuinely or, or maybe they already know. You just assume, for example, your partner, your spouse, like they know you're grateful for them, right? And so we don't say it, but it turns out they don't know that, right? Like we're kind of mind reading in these incorrect ways, whereas we express gratitude more to other people, um, it can have a really big impact. And this is a spot where you can see impact, not just on relationships and feelings of social connection, but even on people's behavior later, even on their performance. Um, one study by Adam Grant and Francesca Gino looked at this in the context of uh, bosses expressing gratitude to their employees. They um, did this study on, on university campuses with like uh, like folks who were working on a pretty thankless task. So they talked to university callers who were like calling and begging people for oh. you know, begging alumni for money, You're like thankless, but very important tasks, you know, for our universities. Mm -hmm. um, and they just had, you know, a real high up at the university come in to these fundraisers and say, hey, you know, I just want to genuinely thank you for what you do. Because you made these calls, we were able to, you know, boost financially because you made these calls X, Y, and Z. Not like took, you know, a couple minutes, right? What they found is that people, those fundraisers who heard an expression of gratitude, increased their rate of successful calls by about 50%, right? You know, imagine wow. you know, every team on the planet increased its performance by 50%. We said, oh my gosh, you have to you know, pay people all this money or give these raises or do these huge interventions. Like, no, just actually expressing gratitude to somebody and giving them a sense of what they're doing is meaningful can really change people's behavior. So again, it's where we're constantly mispredicting the power of social connection. We mind mm -hmm. read so badly. And this leads us to have all these opportunity costs on our happiness. There are these like things we could be doing that will make us feel better, but we don't realize it.
Thank you. I yeah, I love that. Thank you so much. I, I study self knowledge. So all of this piece of oh, being able to identify is like, wow, like well, how do we get over it? You know, if this is it is important for us to, you know, value our own happiness and those of others. Um, so I have another uh, question from the audience. So what are some tips for coping with family members or coworkers who do have that to uh, toxic positivity? Um, and, you know, especially if it's family members or coworkers, you may not be able to escape it. Um, so what kind of um, tips might you have for coping with that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is a spot where you can turn the self-compassion away from the self um, and be compassionate towards other people. Often people who have a hard time experiencing their negative emotions, right? Haven't come up with great strategies to do it, right? You know, they're, they're, it's normative, I think, to be afraid of negative emotions. It's normative to not like things that don't feel good. And so recognizing that this is a common thing, it's a common thing that humans tend to do to kind of avoid negative emotions. But also I think this is a spot where you can really model behavior. You know, if you mindfully talk about feeling overwhelmed, feeling sad, feeling anxious. This was something that I tried to do pretty explicitly with my students where I felt like we're constantly, you know, especially as you know, as professors in this situation, students are like, oh, how's it going? It's great. How are you? Great. You know, but you know, how's it going? Like, actually, I'm feeling really overwhelmed this week. You know, it's like near midterms mm -hmm. and I'm not sure how I'm going to get through or, or actually I'm feeling like kind of sad, like you know, stuff in the news this week that's really bumming me out and it's making me hard to focus. Like, you know, sometimes even as a, as a faculty member, I'll admit that to students and then it opens up the possibility of them doing it themselves. So if you feel like you're suffering, you don't feel like you have to like hide it. Um, and so I think you can, if you're dealing with somebody who's like toxically positive, you can kind of model that. That doesn't mean you have to be kind of a downer all the time. It means you can, you know, mindfully say, you know, I'm feeling sad, but that's human, you know, so I'll get over it. And I'm, here are the strategies I'm going to use to feel better, right? Um, and I think that can be a powerful way to make it okay in organizations to talk about, you know, the fact that sometimes it's hard or in families to talk about the fact that sometimes things are hard and that's okay too. Yeah, I definitely feel like in my experiences during the pandemic as a, as a professor that um, I've grown so much more compassionate and empathetic, I think, towards students. And I've also disclosed a lot more about myself to students because it's like we're all in this together and um, it's, it's, really difficult to you know I'll do I'll do a check-in with everyone at the beginning of class and almost all the students are tired and exhausted um, and I I don't know if you have anything to add to that we're going to be wrapping up soon um, but if you had anything to to mention um, as a way of kind of closing out for uh, yeah I'll let you take that as you want to if there's something yeah. you'd like to close out on I mean I share all these intuitions I think I mean I think honestly recognizing our own psychology, mindfully recognizing our emotions and how we do, how we're doing is really important. And ironically, it is the path forward to feeling better. You know, when we can allow our negative emotions, they take their course. And then that can open us up for the possibility of feeling a little bit more grateful, feeling better things. Um, I guess the wrap up would be the science really shows that the path to well-being is possible. It does take work, like all good things, um, but it's there even in tough times. And it's worth it if you can put the work in. Well, thank you. Um, I do believe we've run out of time now. I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Santos, for joining us today and for sharing your ideas and your thoughts. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for leading the discussion. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Lori and Catherine for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. 
This episode of Crosscut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and Brooklyn Jamerson Flowers and engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Krasnovich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is the product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.